So it's a new year, it's a new you, right? It's a new opportunity. I love it. On December 31st, you're just an average person. On January 1st, you're the best version of you. It's really exciting. Uh, It's a new year to question. Uh, Will I change this time? Uh, It's also, it's a new year to worry about new things. Yeah. And then we might wonder and question in that depth of the worry and the fear of, will I actually change? You might think, how do I get in on the change that other people seem to be grasping for? Uh, Maybe you have resolutions. Maybe you have a word. Some people have words for the year. Maybe you have a theme or an anthem. You know, there's, there's people out there writing great anthems, and that's yours this year, you know. Tonight's going to be a good, good night. That's my anthem, right? But if you're like me, you probably question, is it even possible? Like in, when I lay in bed at night and I remember God as David does, but then I also remember myself and I think, not only like do people change, because sometimes we look at other people and we're like, they don't change, obviously. But then you think about yourself and you're like, but do I change? Not, can I make a difference, but can something make a difference inside of me? Uh, Dostoevsky, uh, through his character, Crime and Punishment, who the main character is essentially an atheist trying to live out the end of the the meaning of the lack of morality if there is no God. It's a great novel. Everyone should read it if they want. Uh, But in, in the midst of it, this main character says, people won't change. Nobody can reform them, and it's not even worth the effort. Then the the guy gets excited. He's like, yes, that's right. It's the law of their being. People don't change. I, I mean, that kind of makes sense, even when you hear that, right? But the Bible, and really the entire message of Jesus in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, over and over and over again, is this profound message, uh, even in the founding of the church itself and the humans that become part of his people on earth, are all pointing to this uh, empirical proclamation claim that Christ transforms humanity. Like, that's the main claim. And you're like, wow, then how do I get in on that? If that's what Christianity is all about, is people being transformed, and the hope of Christ is that even dead things can be raised to life, even the dead parts of our our souls, the things that we miss, that we grieve, even those things could be brought back to full life. How does that happen? How can I get a little bit of that kind of change or transformation? You know, almost like, can I just get a little piece of that bagel that gives us transformation? And today, it's the first Sunday of Epiphany, which is a moment in the church calendar after the longing of Advent, after the celebration of 12 days of Christmas. Hopefully, you all celebrated Christmas for more than one day. Hopefully, your lights are, were up for a bit. Yeah. I remember my grandmother used to take down the tree as soon as the presents were done being unwrapped. She's like, great. But Christmas is this time of prolonged celebration. Oh, Christ has come to us, God with us. And then Epiphany is this time where we think through, well, who is this Jesus 
Who is this God that is with us? What is he actually like? What, is it, what does it mean to sit and to know and to see him with us? And that's what Epiphany is all about. And so we're going to read the very traditional Epiphany passage, which is John chapter 2, verse 1 to 11, and it's when Jesus turns water into wine, and it's the first sign of Jesus, uh, is this miracle at this wedding festival. And I think in this passage, we're going to see a few ways of kind of how we get in on the transformation of Jesus. How do we, how do we become part of that? Uh, this turning of water into wine, that's a big transformation. What, is that, what does that mean for me? How do I get turned from water into wine? Uh, and at the very least, I think we're going to have some encouragements as we step into this new year and this new time of hope and, and longing. And so this is John chapter 2, verse 1 to 11. It says this, it says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. And then his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, and, and the kind that were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, fill them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some of it out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first sign through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is God's word. So how do you get in on this kind of transformation? How do you get changed? The first thing that I notice is these people are not prepared at all. And I think maybe we should be more prepared. As we start this year, we better be you know, prepared and ready for what people are going to throw at us, for people to come to parties and drink wine, right? Like, don't invite people over if you haven't prepared to have more than enough wine for everyone. You know, maybe we think, I think often we think, to see transformation, we have to be ready for it. We have to think through, we have to plan it all out, we have to imagine every scenario that could come our way and make sure we take that into account. You know, for many of us, running out of wine or something is our greatest nightmare. For me as well. Uh, people come to our house, and if like, they, we run out of something that they want, it's horrifying, right? This is why every time I'm smoking meat and making barbecue or whatnot, I go to the store and buy more sausage, I buy more tri-tip, I buy more of every single thing. And then the food balloons, and even we had friends over the week of Christmas, and, and there were 
there were tri-tips in our oven that we forgot about until the next day. It was like, oh, what are we going to do with all of this steak now? I learned all of this from my dad. I remember in high school, my, my brother's girlfriend, my future daughter-in-law or sister-in-law came over to visit for Christmas. Uh, and for breakfast that day, my dad made 18 eggs, four dozen biscuits, and two full packages of bacon. And there were six of us. We could have fed and hosted an entire men's prayer breakfast. It was that kind of food. But we didn't run out of everything, which for my dad and what was passed down to me, that is everything. Be prepared so that you don't run out, right? And this same principle, we think, that applies to our transformation. If we think through it all, if we do war games, if we're ready for whatever comes our way, if we analyze future markets and we think, well, the interest rates are going to go down soon, and that's when we're going to jump in, or the interest rates will go down, and then that's when everybody's going to jump into the market and we'll be on the outside. And, and we try to analyze those things and think, I better be prepared, and if I'm not prepared, the thing that I want to happen, the change that I want to see won't happen. We've got to be ready. And some of this is very good, you know, like prepare yourself for an earthquake. We should be doing that. You should have some water somewhere and some band-aids. You know, the, this is just my little tip for the day. The number one injury they expect will happen after the big earthquake comes will be people getting cuts on their feet. Because when an earthquake happens and the glass breaks, you're going to get out of your bed and walk on glass. So be prepared. Put some shoes next to your bed. That's my tip. <laughs> you should be prepared for some of it. Prepare yourself for stressful work. Prepare yourself for the bar exam. All of these things are good things. I can remember my high school principal, who I used to meet with weekly, uh, mostly because I was the president of the student, you know, whatever, but also because I was dating his daughter. But he would sit with me. He was a retired Marine, uh, a drummer in the Marine you know, National Musical thing. They played for the president and all of that stuff. He was quite a man, but he would always say to me, Brad, proper preparation prevents poor performance. And I thought, oh, that's really good. That's good for student government and maybe my next date with your daughter. So it, wasn't, it was like he wasn't giving me the right advice, maybe. This family and this passage is not prepared. It was humiliating what was about to happen. As soon as people understood that there was no more booze, no more wine, the party would be over. People would leave and they would talk about it for years. The bridegroom and the bride, they would have grandkids and someone would come up and be like, you know, I remember when you ran out of wine at your wedding. That's, it would just hang over them forever. Uh, you might even imagine that, that this, this bridegroom at the beginning of the year thought, I'm going to throw a great party. I'm going to get married. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to demonstrate my wealth, my provision, my thankfulness for this community that's going to carry us through our wedding and our marriage and all of these things. And it was all about to fall away because he ran out of wine. But strangely, this whole, the, the people hosting this party, their lack of, of preparation wasn't really the party pooper situation that you might imagine. And so 
just to like put away that you have to be prepared, did you know that you're not prepared for this year? Did you know that? I'm just looking at you, I can tell. You are not prepared for 2024. You're, you're not going to have enough for what's thrown at you. You will not. You will, you will not have enough spiritual, physical, emotional, financial means to handle what is going to come at you this year. <laughs> it's an election year. You're not ready. There's diseases and viruses that your body doesn't have antibodies for. There are conflicts coming, relational strife that you're not thinking about and ready for. You haven't prepared. At some point this year, you're going to finally feel completely empty, like you're running out of wine at a party, and you're going to slouch into your couch, and you're going to feel like an idiot who didn't prepare. Like, oh, I should have seen this coming. You know, I should have known that Mark Cuban was going to win the election. I should have known that, right? But here's some of the grace of this story in John 2. That hope comes, you know, that hope comes in moments like that. Like this, when you run out and you feel this shame and this embarrassment that, oh my gosh, I do not have enough for what's being thrown at me. I hope you remember this story. Running out of wine wasn't the end for them. It was the beginning. It was the start of the revelation of God's glory. Not the shutting down of God's glory, not the shutting down of transformation, not the end of their marriage, not the end of the party at all. It was simply the beginning. This is the, the secret thing about Jesus, that he's in the back room preparing wine with the servants, preparing grace while you don't have enough. Jesus is there preparing enough. It's fundamental to the gospel. This is like the, the baseline of the message. You're not going to have enough. You're not going to be prepared enough to be worthy to stand before the throne, to be even worthy to keep breathing air and oxygen. And yet, even while you're burning yourself out, trying to prove yourself, Christ died for you, Christ rose again, so that you would be declared forever and always enough. That from the foundations of the world, God was preparing to do all that was needed, all that was required, that you would be brought in and be declared a son or a daughter of God. That's the grace. You're worthy. Uh, it, made, it gets made clear throughout the entire New Testament. You're declared over and over again, righteous, whole, enough because of Christ. You're not prepared. You don't have enough. Praise God for Jesus who is more than enough. So you don't have to be prepared for the year. That's such good news, because you're not. But Christ is. And then maybe we think, okay, so I'm not supposed to be prepared. Great, except for that earthquake thing Brad mentioned. But I surely what I need to do is somehow get God to work for me, right? We have to lead him, cajole him, manipulate Jesus, you know, hey, can you, can you see me? Can you do something for me? We might think that's what Mary is doing. 
She goes to Jesus, and she, she kind of hits, they, they've run out of wine. Did you know there, there's no more wine? And we might think, ah, oh, mothers. Mothers are mothers from the beginning of time, always coming, always prodding us. It's so great. Jesus was just like me. Hey, why don't you do this? You know, my mom thinks I'm the best. She's like, oh, you should, you know, save the world. Why don't you run for president? You know, those sorts of things. And here's Mary saying, kind of cajoling him. Is she manipulating him? But before we ridicule Mary, let's remember who she is. She's heard an angel come to her and speak to her about this child that would be born and that would grow inside of her that would be the salvation of the nations. Uh, she received shepherds on the night that he was born. They were just there kind of trying to keep him warm, and all of a sudden shepherds showed up and told her about this whole choir of angels that's singing and declaring joy to the world because a Savior was born to us. She, she knew all of those things. She probably still knew where the containers of the gold and the frankincense and myrrh were in her little house in Nazareth, that she carried with her uh, into Egypt and through refugee camps as they hid away from Herod. She probably still remembers finding Jesus in the temple, teaching learned men who knew everything, but there they were listening to Jesus. She remembered all of these things. Mary really, through the whole, Mary's the first, the first true believer. Like she held all of these things together. She was the first knower of the, the saving power of God. And she actually, through her entire life, did not waver. Uh, she believed, she knew what he was capable of. She had all of these memories in her mind, and I'm certain even more that we're not aware of. And so she saw a problem in this world, and she says, I know who is the, the mender of broken things. I know who is the problem solver of major problems. And so she says to Jesus, look, they ran out of wine. Won't you do what you do all the time? But come on, Jesus isn't a genie. He doesn't meddle in trivial pursuits, right? Like, yes, the angel said, Savior of the world, like grace and joy and honor to the people that receive him. Like, that's big. This is a party. Jesus didn't come into the world to fix people's messes like a party where they've run out of wine. Like, is he really here to make sure the already buzzed continue to be buzzed? Like, that doesn't, that, this is a trivial thing. He's supposed to turn back the tide of evil. He's supposed to redeem the world, right? This is so beneath him. This party is so beneath his mission, right? He even tells, to her, tells her, and you should know, the woman here is not like how we're like, woman. It's like a word of endearment and kindness, just so you know. Uh, but it's hard to read. I'm like, how do you read this without being like, woman? It's like, woman. He's nice. Anyway. He tells her, don't involve me. My hour has not yet come. This isn't my time. And we think, oh, this is trivial. And you have tons, like this year, you're going to have so many trivial things in your life. And you might be tempted to think Jesus doesn't care about the trivial. But it seems like nothing is too trivial for Jesus. 
There's a storm, and his fishermen friends are afraid, and he makes it calm. But like all storms calm down eventually, like the wind will stop blowing. It's like the trivial thing of a friend out there on a boat, and he walks to them to be with them. Nothing's too trivial. I want to be with this person in this boat, so I'm going to walk on water to them. Or fishing, there's a moment where his disciples are fishing and they're not catching anything, and suddenly Jesus steps in, the Redeemer and the Savior of the world, and he says, hey, actually put your nets on the other side, and he gives them, it's like Jesus cares about fishing. There can't be anything more trivial than fishing, but he does. It's a trivial thing on the day of Palm Sunday where he's going to go into Jerusalem. He sees and has a vision of a donkey, like how rudimentary and benign can a donkey be? And yet he says, there's a donkey, I can see it, go to that person, and that person will actually have a house and a room where we can have a party. How trivial. Or there he is taking bread and wine, the most basic fabrics of all civilization, bread, wine, and concrete. And here he is holding the two things that are so normal, so everyday, saying, no, this is not trivial. After his resurrection, we might have these images of him doing really big, important things, and yet he's on a beach grilling fish for his friends. And so Mary, remember, with all of her background, she keeps pressing on with Jesus. She knows, no, when he redeems the whole world, nothing is too trivial. And so she tells the servants, I love it, she's like assuming the sale. He says, this isn't my time. And she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. This isn't my time is this phrase. Uh, it's throughout the entire Gospels of John. It's about Jesus being known publicly. And there's all these moments where Jesus kind of pulls away. He does something miraculous. He does something special. Then he pulls away. It's like, this isn't my time to be seen and to be fully known. But here she is, assuming the sail, and you think, well, Jesus is going to rebuke her, right? Like, I'm not a magical wand. I'm not a doer of fancy things, you know? I'm not just a wizard who you can cajole and pay some money to to do a magic trick, right? But Jesus does get involved in this trivial thing. Based on her faith and belief in who he is, he gets involved, and he gives instructions to the servants. And so maybe, just maybe, we're supposed to believe this year, based on all of God's past faithfulness, maybe we're supposed to assume that Christ will be involved in the trivial, in the mundane, in the stressful, in the shame-inducing. We, maybe we ought to, and we, as we think about transformation, see ourselves less and see more of, of course, he's going to do this thing, do something. And what's great is I don't think Mary knew, like, he has this special water-to-wine recipe. I don't think she had any clue what he was going to do. She just knew he would get involved. He's going to do something. And maybe we should be more stubbornly believing 
Kind of like Moses when he's carrying the, the people of, of Israel through the desert and they're incredibly rebellious over and over again and he, he doesn't like them. It's like this terrible triangulation relationship that Moses has with God and the people and it's awful and he's stuck in the middle of it and God's like, you know what, I'm going to get rid of all of them and I'm just going to stick with you. And then at that moment, Moses is terrible. No, you have to stick with them. You have to stick with them. You have to stick with me. You have to do this thing with the people. That's who you are. It's your nature. It's what you are all about. Maybe we're supposed to be more stubbornly believing like Moses and Mary. And I think that's a good start for the year. More than calendars, more than budgets, more than trying to understand interest rates and the tax code. I think we're supposed to expect Jesus. And what everyone else might expect to be inconsequential, we expect him to be involved. Why? Because it's who he is. It's what he's about. Earlier in the, this book, in the, the chapter before, John says that Jesus is the word the message, the logos, uh, the teleological rationale for the existence of the universe. Like that's why the, the whole, like from the very back to the very forward, he is the reason and the cause of the existence of the universe. Uh, he's the unmovable first cause that Thomas Aquinas spoke about. As he tried to, Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages, trying to prove that God exists. And he said, there must be something in the very beginning that is unmovable that causes everything else to move. That's what John is talking about, too. He's the Word. He's the initiator and the sustainer of all of the movement of the cosmos. That's what Plato and Aristotle conceived and talked about 300 years before this. That's who he is, the unmovable creator, sustainer of the entire existence of the universe. And so Mary says, I think you can do something about no more wine. This, my friends, is what faith and hope is all about, a belief and expectation that Jesus is God and that he will play and be involved and present in everything. I don't think Mary manipulated Jesus into working. I don't think she like twisted his arm or used motherly manipulation to get him to do something. I think she just kind of involved him in the mundane because she knew who he was. This is what he is. This is what his mission is all about. God is always present in the ordinary. The water, the jug, the wedding. And what if, for you... What if the most significant character in your own story uh, isn't you? What if you're not the main character? What if you're an inconsequential agent in the year 2024? Just, you will be. I mean, none of us here are going to be consequential to the turning of the tide. What if Christ is the most consequential what if the great moments of revelation of God's grace to you this year are while you're cleaning up the house or when you're filling up the car with gas 
or when you're dropping your kids off at school, or you're at the doctor's office for a checkup, or you're on a midweek Zoom call for a meeting that should have been an email, or you're at the third rehearsal in a long string of rehearsals, or you're on just a, a morning walk, or you're watching one of the most ordinary things there is in the world, a wave crashing against the ocean. I mean, it happens every two seconds all over the world. But in, what if it's, those are the moments in which God reveals himself to you and shows you his glory? And maybe it's all just about this deeper knowing of how great Jesus is. Maybe it's about growing in belief that he will be who he said he would be, that he will be who he's always been, and he'll be it in your life. He's the fullness of God dwelling with us. But there's more. More happens. Then he tells the, the servants, he says, fill these jars, these jugs, with water. Uh, they're ceremonial jugs of water. They're, they're jugs that are supposed to be used uh, for the cleaning of dishes and the, the making of unclean things clean. Uh, and there's a whole process of that, which means they have to have a lot of jugs of water to, to kind of do this whole cleaning thing constantly. It's for religious purification. But here Jesus is taking it and saying, we're going to use this for a party instead. And what he tells them to do is to fill these six jugs of water, or jugs full of water to the very brim. And I just want us to do a little math this morning, okay? So the, the text tells us that each jug is between 20 to 30 gallons. So if we just average it out and say each jug, 25 gallons, and there's six of them, okay? That is 150 gallons of wine. That's, I don't know, that's, that's kind of a lot of wine. But we don't really see wine in gallons unless you're going to Costco. Like, you don't order wine in gallons. So this is a little bit easier. That's, that's equivalent to about 63 cases of wine or 756 bottles of wine or 3,780 glasses of wine. Just so we're aware, Jesus made a lot, a lot of wine. While it's not this verifiable biblical fact, like we don't get a meanwhile back at the bridegroom's house and the first miracle, but I think we could understand from just the sheer quantities that this family was probably still drinking this fine wine the day Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, it's, that, um, it's, it's a multiple years supply of wine. Or maybe they hosted a ton of ton of parties, they shared it with their neighbors, or maybe they just cherished it for decades in a wine cellar. I mean, this is so much wine. I just want you all to be aware. And all I know, I think the details matter, and I think the details are here for us to know, for you to know, that Jesus made an abundance. This family, this party, was not running out of wine anymore. Like he gave in excess. And this is also Jesus' habit. This is what he does. He works in excess. Uh, there's the abundance of leftovers of loaves and fishes twice, 
which is such an odd thing that, that there's all these people hungry, there's a few loaves, a few fishes, he multiplies it because people are hungry, and instead of just, I mean, he knew how many people there were and what their stomachs are, right? The pre-existing teleological existence of the universe, right? And yet he's like, let's make, let's make extra. Let's, let's make 12 baskets full of extra food. This is how he, he done it twice. When, when Christ works, he works in excess. The same is true with grace. That not only does Christ uh, come and, and give us unmerited favor, and we're like, that's great. Jesus brought us to zero. We were terrible. We were awful. We were dead in our sins. And he brought us to neutral. Instead, it's like, no, I'm going to heap on extra, extra, extra on top of you. Like the prodigal son that comes back, oh, I'm going to put my ring on you, I'm going to put my coat on you, you're going to be the, the, the purpose of this entire party, and you don't deserve any of it. It would have been grace if the father would have brought the son just into his home as a servant. That would have been grace. Instead, it's abundant, and that's how it works for you. It's also Jesus works in abundance of salvation, that his life, that his death, this saving, he could have saved two, he could have saved three, it would have been great, all angels celebrating. Instead, he says over and over again, I came to save sinners, lots and lots of sinners, his salvation is in excess. His resurrection is in abundance. He rises from the dead, and we think, that's so great. Christ has died. He's risen again. That is wonderful. Except that in his resurrection, he's not just uh, saying, oh, I rose from the dead, but that all who believe would rise, and that their souls and their very lives would be raised. Like, what an excess. What an abundance. This is years and years supplies of wine, but applied to humanity. The restoration of the entire world. He doesn't just restore a tiny part of Israel or a little church or anything like that, but his promise is to restore all things, all broken, all sad things, made untrue and even more alive, more vibrant than before. Like more real, more good. And then there's also just the abundance of glory. Not just showing us a little, but showing us more than we could ever comprehend. Not everything Jesus does is remarkably like stupefying to the public. Like, I can't believe he did that. Not everything he does is the reordering of all things, but everything Jesus does is glorious, significant, and more than enough. It's also his best. He I think it's kind of funny that Jesus is kind of like a waiter when you order wine and they pour a little bit in the glass and then the head of the, you know, then the waiter's trying to figure out who's paying and to give that person the glass. I always love it. Uh, apparently, that's just so you can smell the wine to make sure it's not bad, just so you know. There's my second tip for the day. Shoes next to your bed. It's for you to smell, not to taste. But that's basically what Jesus does. He, pours, he tells the servants, pour a little bit, take this to the master of the ceremonies for him to give a little taste. 
And that's what he does. And then the, the, this guy who is in charge of weddings, like a wedding planner, uh, the guy who's in charge of parties, the one who brings it, who does it, and he takes a sip and he's amazed. He calls the bridegroom over and he says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine, but you've brought out the best at last. Not only does Jesus work this miracle of suddenly there's more wine, but also it's the best. It's like the best of wine. And everything Jesus does is the best. I know that sounds very simple, but everything he does is the best, the finest. He makes the best wine. He makes the best communities. I'm sure he made the best grilled fish. I'm sure he was the best at foot cleaning and that those disciples' feet were as clean as any foot has ever been clean. He was certainly the best at teaching. I mean, scholars and, and people who study rhetoric still look at Jesus as that's the master teacher. The only reason we talk about Plato and Aristotle and Socrates in our schools instead of Jesus is because Jesus is just too much for our schools. But he is the best teacher, the best at rhetoric, the best analyzer of culture, seeing through everything, the best uh, putting of people in place. He's the best judge of things. When he takes the religious leaders, he says, woe to you for these very specific, precise things, and he does it with the best imagery. He is the best. And the news about him, that he died, that he rose again, and everything that we've been talking about is not good news amongst a lot of other good news. It is intrinsically the best news you will ever hear. And that is what he does. And lastly, uh, John throws it out here that this is the first sign. What he did here in Cana and Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and then his disciples believed in him. These are the same disciples that had already decided to follow him with their life. I think the believing is this recurring over and over again because John uses this throughout the gospel repeatedly. The disciples believed in him. The disciples believed in him. I think what happens is we see Jesus and we believe. We see and we believe. It's not a once you're in, oh, I believe that one time 20 years ago. It was so lovely. It's, oh, I believe still. I continue to believe. For reference, just the other signs were um, the healing of the, the noble person's son in John 4, the healing of a man at the pool in John 5, the feeding of 5,000, John 6, Jesus walking on water, also in John 6, healing of a blind man, a person born blind, John 9, then the resurrection of Lazarus in John 11. Those are the signs. But what's odd about this sign, not just that it's a party, nobody gets healed, uh, no one sees someone walk on water, no one who's dead is brought back to life, but what makes this one really, really unique is the only people that knew this happened were the servants in the back room who filled it up, filled the jars. The master of the ceremonies doesn't know had no idea. We know this because he brings the bridegroom over. and He's like, taste this wine. This wine's so good. Thank you. The bridegroom does not know. 
what happened. The bride doesn't know. The guests, the host, nobody knows, except when the the party was over and people were waking up the next day, they had 150 gallons of wine. It's just the mystery of it all. There's this miracle that's supposed to be a sign to the world of God's glory, that Jesus is uh, God-made flesh, and the only people that know are servants in the back room who had to have, if you also do the math, how many trips to the well did they do to fill those jars, right? The miracle benefits the host. It saves him from public humiliation and shame not only saves him from that, but also this miracle elevates him as an abundantly generous host. So instead, from now on, when they're having their 50th wedding anniversary, people are giving him a toast, probably with the same wine, saying, remember how great of a host you are. You're so generous. You always bring the best. And the, the host would have no idea how that happened. So not only does he save him from shame, he gives an abundance. He didn't even know It was just a few people observing the glory of God in the back room. It was assigned to his disciples. It was assigned to his mother, assigned to servants. So what if Jesus surprises you this year in unexpected things, in the moments that you're not prepared for, in the moments you don't even believe? The host wasn't out in there having a good time thinking, I really believe that Jesus is the creator of the universe here to save all things. He was just being handed fancy wine. What if Jesus surprises you in the moments that you're not even aware of, in these simple, ordinary moments? C.S. Lewis, famous writer, Chronicles of Narnia and things like that, before, before he did all of that, he was a staunch atheist, a really, like, as far as atheists go, he was a really good one. Like, he, he was rational. Uh, it kind of bo- came out of when his mother died, and he was in boarding school, and he didn't like his father, but he also was just trying to analyze all of these things, and he was brilliant. He was brilliant with words. The way he articulated atheism, like, tops, you know? I guess Jesus isn't the best atheist, that's him. So there's a little part where there's other good atheists besides him. There's something he's not the best at. But in the, the late 20s, C.S. Lewis started to feel like maybe he was wrong. And he started to uh, have these friends and these conversations, and he began to think, well, maybe I'm not the smartest person in the room. And I know they're not the smartest person in the room. I know I am, but maybe there's, a, maybe there's something greater and, he, and you would think that with someone like C.S. Lewis, he was a professor at Oxford already at this time as a young man, like quite an achievement. And, and you would think, okay, he's going to dive into all of these books and he's going to come to some reason that's going to be really profound. Instead, what happened is he was riding the bus across the river in Oxford into the, the main center where the university is, where his college is, where his office is, and he's, and he's crossing over, and he suddenly has this sense as the sun is rising that, that he's holding something at bay. Those are his words. I'm holding something at bay, and I'm shutting something out. Here's a picture of me. Or not me, that's C.S. Lewis. 
But that was me on a bus at the same spot that he was probably at, crossing the bridge. That was just a cool moment I had in September. But he thought to himself, I can either open this door to this thing that I'm shutting out, or I can let it stay shut, he says. But if I open this door, I know that it's going to mean welcoming in the incalculable. And that was the beginning of his conversion. A few months later, he says that he got into his office while he was just doing his normal grading and writing and research and the stuff that you do when you're a professor in Oxford. And he got, and he just kind of closed everything and he became the most reluctant convert, saying, I guess you're just true. While grading papers, while riding a bus, I hope, though, that you'll be like C.S. Lewis and notice. Even if you're not noticing Christ, I hope that you notice the goodness of the wine, at least. I hope that you notice the goodness of that moment, maybe the, the goodness of the abundance that you're receiving. And then you'll see Jesus clearly, too. Maybe as a reluctant convert, maybe as an overjoyed convert, and you'll be like the disciples who even though you believed years and years ago, you will say to yourself, I believe in the sign of glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the abundance of your uh, life and your death and your resurrection. I thank you for the, the bread and the wine that we're about to, to take that it would remind us of the incredible grace in ordinary things, uh, that you turn all sad things untrue. I pray for us as a church that we'd be surprised by your grace and your glory, that we would be uh, exceptionally uh, overjoyed, that we would expect you to work um, in abundance, in excess, that we would receive your grace that way.